Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done nearly 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to the Past Interviews menu on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, where you'll find all the previous ones categorized in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to support it in any amount, there's a PayPal button on every page of batgap.com, and also there's a page about other ways to donate if, you're, if you don't like PayPal. My guest today is Judy Cohen. Judy is a former clinical psychologist, former serial entrepreneur, which I presume means she tried a lot of ventures, not all of which turned into the next Amazon, um, former depressed, anxious, antidepressant-taking, suicidal despairer. She used to be a seeker of self-improvement. She used to be a certified facilitator of the work of Byron Katie. In fact, I think there's still something on your website about you're doing that, although you say that you don't do it anymore, so you might want to update your website. Um, also a certified senior facilitator trainer of the Living Inquiries, which is Scott Kilby's thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so she's not certified in either method anymore. She was desperate to feel better. Luckily, eventually, Judy came to see that the method she was trained and certified in actually perpetuated, strengthened the sense of self as damaged. Several awakening experiences happened. Contrary to popular myth, they didn't put an end to unpleasant feelings. So all that seeking, the inquiry, the desperation to shift was for what then? Judy finally realized she could give, us, give up seeking because this is it. As it is. Which sounds kind of Katie-ish, but we'll talk about that. And what could any teacher or technique give her that wasn't already there? Already here, rather. That she didn't already have. She came to see that every experience, good, happy, bad, or sad, is an awakening. She knew to give up seeking because there was nothing more to get. She'd had it all along. Much more fun, this no Judy to fix, nothing to seek existence. Though, of course, she's also still here as Judy because human continues, and paradoxically, that's better. All right, I, I, I told Judy I might not read the whole bio, but I did because it was kind of fun and entertainingly written as are the things on her website, sort of a playful, irreverent kind of tone. Does, does that describe your personality, playful and irreverent? It does. I'm not one of these um, spacey, all good types. Yes, I'm, I like yeah. to laugh. I mean, when did you first get started on the spiritual path? Have you been at it since you were a teenager? Did you pick it up later in life, or what? I spent most of my life miserable. Mm -hmm. And um, I stumbled on Byron Katie in my mid-50s. Mm -hmm. So... So, uh, like, yesterday? 11, yes. <laughs> 11, 12 years ago, something okay. like that. No, I, yeah, something like that. Approximately then. Uh-huh. Um, and I just stumbled on her name on a talk radio s station in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And until then, I would say that, and even then, I was skeptical and mocking, mm -hmm. I would say. Of, of this kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. I had no interest, and when I came across it, I found it amusing. Yeah. Well, you must have 
felt you were getting something out of Byron Katie or you wouldn't have become a certified facilitator, right? Or practitioner, whatever they're called. Yeah, for sure. I jumped in wholeheartedly. I didn't really understand it, but it, it came to my neighborhood. I didn't really know at the time. I didn't have any background, so I didn't know at the time that she came to my neighborhood several times a year. I didn't know that. And I was all in for a few years there. So did you really um, feel that, what did you say here? The methods you were trained and certified in perpetuated strength in the sense of self as damage. Did it really do that or, or was there some positive aspect to it? It was maybe counterbalanced by this strengthening of the self as damaged. Well, I came to that um, realization later. Mm -hmm. um, but at first, what I found the work amazingly good for, and it, it definitely was... Uh, there were many ways that it was very helpful. And I would say that it was my entry point to, um, to a real sense of what I am and what I am not. It was the entry point. And I think as a way to make the dream world less painful, it's great. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Yeah. So if you did nothing but that, fab. I mean, Nothing life, but make the dream world less painful. Yeah. <clears throat> and by dream world, of course, you mean the world we all live in. You're alluding to it as a dream world. Right. Well, yeah. you know, it's not a reality from what I can see. We have all agreed tacitly to accept the fake as real. And yet, you know, we, we appear to live in it and we have to, we have to do our best in it. And if we can find a way to not hurt, why wouldn't we want to do that? Yeah. So the work, the work definitely did that for me for a while. Sure. I mean, I think it's a universal thing that people want to be happier, not hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Who would want to hurt on purpose? I mean, I guess there are people that do, but... Well, even when they do, they somehow derive some sense of gratification out of it in, in right. a distorted kind of way. Well said. Yeah. Yes. So let's say that you go and take a vacation in Yosemite National Park and you spend time mm -hmm. walking among the redwoods and just you know, living in a cabin for a while and being out in nature. Is that also the dream world just as much as living in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or is that Abs more real yes. in some way? Yes, and I'm going to answer all of these questions as if with a kind of certainty, I just want to be really clear that ordinarily when I'm speaking or thinking um, for myself, I am aware that in the end, none of us really knows the answers to these questions. Mm -hmm. And um, we have strong ideas and opinions, but I'm also aware that that's all it is. And so, you know, is that also a dream world? Yes. It's all projected. It's all perception and it's all smoke and mirrors yeah so let me phrase it a different way and see if you agree with this so by calling it a dream world are you saying that whatever it is our particular filtered view of it which is necessarily filtered by the nature and limitations of our senses and understanding is not what it really is it's only a, a kind of a, a limited peephole into what the the full reality of it might be Yes, and I think it's distorted. 
ferociously distorted also. So it is a limited per people. We are limited by what this brain is capable of perceiving, what the hardware is capable of perceiving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have great faith in these brains, but they have limits. Yeah. So we're not only limited by that, but in addition, we are, it's twisted, distorted, mostly by language. Yeah. Okay, a couple questions there. So, would you say that it's distorted to different degrees in different people's experience? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of if you are having, you, Rick, the character Rick, is having a problem with a neighbor, you may not see that situation clearly. That will be distorted. But in addition, the idea that there is a you, there is a neighbor, there is a, a home and a next door and a house and all of that, that is also, that is kind of a universal distortion. I see. So there's the, um, the individual distortion that comes out of our apparent backgrounds and conditioning and family life from childhood. And there's also the agreed on conditioning um, or twisted perception of all of this yeah. that we start training in from the, time we're, from the time we learn to speak. Which makes life possible. We all agree that there's a stop sign there and that we better stop at it or else we're going to get killed or something. And, and, exactly. You know, whereas to an ant, there's no stop sign there. Uh, there's something that the ant is climbing, but it has no idea what it is. It, it has a different perspective. Right. And who knows what stop signs we're not seeing. Yeah, good. Good point. So. <laughs> Meaning that who knows what is there, which, we're, which is beyond the limitations of our perception. Right. 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 I mean, you only have to have a, a cat or a dog to see, to, you know, to experience that in a, in a real way in our daily life. Because they, you know, I have a cat and mm-hmm. periodically the cat will go. Yeah. <laughs> And there's nothing there, as far as I can tell. And, you sure. know, dogs hear sounds we can't hear. We're, our hardware isn't built to pick that up. doesn't mean there's not a sound happening. Sure. And same with bats and dolphins and all kinds of animals. I mean, yeah. it's said that birds actually migrate by being able to see the magnetic lines of, in, of the Earth's gravitational field, or at least that's a theory. Well, you know, coming from California, just having moved here only a month ago, it was common knowledge that just before an earthquake, mm-hmm. the number of missing pets increased significantly. Right. So you could almost predict an earthquake was coming by the fact that if you just checked those, those personal ads, those classified ads, you know, lost pets ads increased exponentially. They had some kind of warning yeah. that we don't, we don't pick up. And whether it's a gravitational field or what, it's something. Yep. Before that big tsunami that happened in, in you know, in Asia um, five or eight years ago, whenever it was, there were a lot of animals that headed for the hills, you know. I remember that, right? Yeah. They and, know. Um, Rupert Sheldrake, whom I interviewed a month or so ago, has wrote a book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And it was all about this kind of phenomenon of how dogs and other animals have these abilities, which are really hard to explain by conventional means. By human means. By human means. Right. 
Okay, so you said a minute ago that language is, is the main culprit, perhaps, in the distortion of our perception, and that would imply that maybe cats and dogs are not so distorted, but then they have their own languages. So, um, and, and, and also, obviously, they and all animals, a bat, an ant, have very uh, different chunk of the, of the spectrum of potential uh, experience in, in their in their experience. Um, so it seems like everybody has a peephole, regardless of what sort of being you are, regardless of whether you use any language we would recognize as a language or not. The thing is with other, other species, they don't have words. They communicate, but they don't have words. And the, and the thing about words is that they are symbols. They're a step removed from experience. They're a describer of experience. Mm. The word touch, and then there's the touch. They're not the same thing. And so as we apply words, we are instantly removed. And that twist, that, that colors everything. Yeah. But, I don't, I mean, I don't think that necessarily means animals are more... Well, let's use the word enlightened for a second, just to, for the sake of economy, than humans. Um, they may be more in tune with nature in certain respects, but, you know, boy, if, if, the, if the UPS man comes to the door, our dogs go ballistic, which is, you know, I guess appropriate dog response, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in terms of the potential threat that the UPS man poses. Right, although they probably have a damn good time at it. <laughs> oh, they enjoy it. You know, so... <laughs> but, but, I mean, it's like, you know, chill, you guys. I mean, you know, everything's okay here. Uh, yeah, but they're having fun. Yeah. To come back to your, your point, I mean, this is what your show is about, so I understand that. But the question is, what, do you, what does enlightenment or awaken even mean? What's... Because are they aware of consciousness I don't know. I'm assuming not. Mm -hmm. But is that is that it? Is that what it is? Okay. Well, let's let's spend some time on that. Um, and maybe we can start doing that by. You you mentioned in some of your writings that you had um, numerous incremental awakenings, too many to count, and some very powerful. Uh, there was one in which you were on your knees, having fallen off the bed, and as you put it, the planet had moved. These awakenings. Awakening implies going from sort of less awakened to more awakened. So what are you talking about here? Describe those experiences, especially the, the Lollapalooza one where the planet had moved. Well, just understanding, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation. This is not how I ordinarily communicate these kinds of things. I tend to avoid the words awakening or enlightenment unless I'm um, making a specific point about something else, uh -huh. actually. Believe it or not, but, um, so do I. I mean... The terms just have too static and superlative a connotation, and you know the fact that even though I talk and think about all this stuff all the time, when somebody says they had an awakening, I, I have to say I, I don't know what you're talking about exactly. What you know, we have to really get into it and define what they mean by the term. Especially when you when you especially on your show, mm -hmm. you know, or anywhere else, when you start to see how huge the variety is. Yeah of what that experience is supposed to mean, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of loses its its value. 
as a standard or even as a determiner of what's actually going on. When people want to hear mine or anybody else's experience of awakening, I always wonder what for. Because what value is it to them or anyone what my experience was. It's not like they're going to catch it from my words. It's not like... Here's what I find is that all these stories out there of people who have awakened in some way or become enlightened in some way, as these stories are told, people use them as um, to perpetuate seeking. They use these stories to evaluate how they're doing and they compare themselves to whatever the story is and they see if they are better or worse than the story and they start chasing or they continue chasing. And I think that the perpetuation of these stories kind of makes people feel bad about themselves or superior, which is also not a necessary, necessarily good thing. That all being said, I do, I do intend to answer your question. But I did want to say that I, I just don't know the value of telling these stories. Well, you just articulated the downside of it. I think there's also an upside. Let's use Yosemite again. Let's say I've never been to Yosemite and someone has just visited there and they start telling me about it. And, oh, it's so amazing. Half Dome is so beautiful. And I took this hike up to the top of the cliff and hiked all the way down. And, you know, they can, they can go on and on describing their trip. Um, and it, it incentivizes me. I want to go there and experience that myself. And people have been telling you stories for thousands of years. The scriptures are full of them. And um, so it indicates to people, first of all, that there is something, even though you know, there might be a lot of disagreement as to what it exactly is, um, and it sounds good. You know? <laughs> and so it's something that one might aspire to. It, it okay. It's just that I, I guess there we maybe disagree because I don't think the aspiring helps anybody and I think it does hurt. And especially if the goal is, the goal is uh, awakening, you can't get it by aspiring. Seek so, and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. Okay. And in your experience, is that, is that true? Seek yes. and you shall find? Mm -hmm. Okay. It is. Um, and I mean, for about a year before I learned to meditate, I was, you know, reading Zen books and reading Timothy Leary and taking Timothy Leary's advice and you know, doing different things like that. And, um, you know, I kind of got the deep conviction that there was some higher thing that could be lived or experienced. Or, uh, and so it lit a fire in me to, to realize that, and it, it sort of set a course of my life, which proved very beneficial. And again, I, you know, I understand that there's a whole lot of that. Mm -hmm. And my sense is, if awakening is being present, mm -hmm. how can you get it by chasing something else? I get that. And I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate a little bit, because I also understand the angle that you're coming from and there's some kind of a happy medium here someplace between chasing the dangling carrot forever and settling into that which is already here and which you're already experiencing and maybe 
being, you know, you can't impose this on anybody, but maybe <laughs> when you're not chasing something else that you think is better, maybe you can actually find contentment with what's here. Yeah. You know, I work with a lot of people who are chasing something, and I see the pain that it brings. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot of pain. Yeah. Because, because when you're aspiring or you're seeking and you're not finding, well, now you're a failure in addition to not having this wonderful thing that somebody else has. Mm -hmm. So you're missing out and you're failing. You know, Yeah. it hurts. I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for many years. And um, I mean, I experienced stuff from day one and my life definitely improved and continued to improve. But I was definitely um, an eager beaver in terms of like, you know, enlightenment or bust. And um, one time I was up on a stage at the podium talking about something. He was sitting there and there was an audience and, and he interrupted me and he said, every day is life. He said, don't pass over the, the future, don't pass over the present for some glorious future. Exactly. Yeah. What's the point of that right. other than pain, honestly? You know, in terms of that experience, he was right. You can make yourself miserable by failing to appreciate what's here now, what you've got and, and all, and just kind of moaning and groaning and pining for some glorious future. But on the other hand, it's, I think, realistic to understand that we do continue to grow, or we may, and that, you know, 20 years from now, if all goes well, we may be a lot happier or brighter or clearer or whatever than we are now. But, you know, that is not to say that you should disparage what you're experiencing now, but that, that possibility is there, wouldn't you say? What I have found, and, and this, is, this is one of the many, many paradoxes in, in all of this, is that when a person, again, I'm kind of, um, I frequently work with people who have tried everything and who have been seeking and searching and trying and aspiring, as you said, yeah. for a really long time, sometimes many decades. And I'm kind of experienced for many people as like the last resort. And one of the ways where they've tried everything, you know, and they're, it's kind of astonishing the, the amount of despair that exists out there because they haven't gotten it. Yeah. And despite doing all the right things and going to satsangs and sitting at retreats and giving thousands of dollars to this one or that one or traveling to India and meditating every day and sometimes several times a day, despite that, these are people who are depressed, really depressed. And so paradoxically, the paradox is that when you get to a point where you just say, screw it, here now, mm -hmm. this is this is it. Paradoxically, there is a relief that comes with that kind of surrender to what is instead of what we want. Yeah. So, for a depressed person or an anxious person, it's like it's it's hard and it's fought, but it's kind of a miracle almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get that, and I agree with you, and uh, I wouldn't dispute it. But there is, it is paradoxical. And there is, the, you remember um, 
fiddler on the roof. He kept saying, on the other hand, you know, there is another hand. Until there isn't. Yeah. And at the point that there isn't, it's astonishingly a blessed relief. We think that it won't be, but if what you're after is improvement and a better feeling, for a whole lot of people, you can't. It can't be gotten by seeking. Well, in my own case, let me just speak from my own experience. Maybe that'll help. You know, I feel like for a long time I was a seeker. There was this yearning, striving, struggling. I mean, I was practicing, and I still practice. I still meditate. But there was this feeling of, you know, got to get it. Haven't got it. Can't wait till I get it. And then at a certain point, it wasn't actually a you know, one moment, but it just dissipated and disappeared. And now there's none of that kind of feeling. And yet I still meditate. I still feel like I'm growing and improving in, in, in different ways. And um, I don't really care about any particular pot at the end of the rainbow, you know, whatever comes will come. But I, I also feel and acknowledge that there are higher possibilities yet to fathom, yet to realize, yet to experience, but I don't bemoan what I'm experiencing now. It's like education. I mean, let's say you're in the fifth grade. You may eventually get a PhD. You're going to know a lot more then than you do in the fifth grade, but that doesn't mean you should bitch and moan about being in the fifth grade. You have to just fully enjoy that and then enjoy the sixth grade and so on as you, as you progress through your education. I guess what we're talking about here is you're obviously not in a place where the idea that there's more you can get is depressing to you or hard for you or painful to you. But you would be perhaps shocked to discover how many people this is painful for. Terribly, life-ruiningly painful. For. I mean, I, I, I'm just hearing from, this. I work with all these people who, yeah. you know, as I said, have tried everything, and these are very unhappy folks. Part of what brings this unhappiness up is the idea that there's something they're not getting. There's something mm-hmm. out there. They're missing out. And the question is, is that, to quote Byron Katie, is that true? Yeah, good. Okay, well, let's keep let's probe that. I don't question that you talk to such people or that there aren't such people. I totally believe you, and, but I'd like to understand better why that is. Do you find my medic my education metaphor appropriate at all? If you were to talk to one of these people and say, "Yeah, yeah, there's more, but enjoy what you've got now," it, I would it's, never it's say typical somebody of any field more. of life that that we're not as good an athlete or as good a scholar or as good in anything as we may be if we you know over time if we continue to focus on that thing I, you know all of that is language so contrary to how I work or think that mm-hmm. I, I I would never say to anybody there's more I would never say to anybody where you are is fine, but there's someplace better, or there's more to be had. I would never say that. And so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It, you know, seeking is as good a way to live this life as any. But if the dream world is miserable, then it's not working. 
No, and, if it's making the dream world miserable, then definitely. Right. And so what I would say is that there is, I mean, I'm very lucky that I have the ability to kind of cut through a lot of the garbage that mind provides people mm -hmm. and help people uh, actually see for themselves, not, you know, listening to me spout off for a couple of hours, but to experience for themselves what is actually happening. And in order to do that, it's not a question of chasing something else or learning or educating. It's not even any of that. Uh -huh. It's simply finding a way to experience what is already here. It doesn't have to be learned. It doesn't have to be chased. It doesn't have to be uh, educated. Yeah. Uh, it's already here. There's nowhere to go for it. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I agree with that, obviously. What, what is that verse in the Gita? The unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. So what is real is already here. And what you're saying is, the name of the game is to experience that, to experience what is already here. If you can, if and you not can. everybody, if you can't, this is good anyway. Why wouldn't somebody be able to? Only because thought often <laughs> makes that not possible. So you make it sound like some people are qualified or capable of experiencing what's already here, and others, sorry Charlie, you just don't have what it takes. That's not the case. I guess where I come from is that it honestly doesn't matter if we know it or not. Mm -hmm. It's still what's here. True. And it doesn't matter if we understand. You know, the spiritual scene is full of people trying to understand, mm -hmm. trying to learn, trying to educate, trying to understand. And all of that depends on mind slash ego slash thought. Uh, those are interchangeable for me. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't understand without mind. And I have found ways to bypass that. Um, but I have not found that understanding is even necessary. Well, let's keep <laughs> playing with this. No, it's good. I'm liking this conversation. Uh, hopefully, okay. hopefully the people watching are also. Um, I think there are different faculties for understanding. You just named a few of them, mind slash ego slash. There's, there's senses, oh. there's intellect, there's intuition, there's heart. You know, there's these sort of different aspects of the, of the experiencing mechanism, different levels of it, some grosser, some subtler, and this and that. And obviously if, if one just applies the grossest aspect of them without in, in also engaging the subtler, then the understanding is going to be partial, right? And if you're depending on language, mm -hmm. thought is not going to um, it's not going to help. Sure. Well, can we take a simple example? Um, let's say the taste of a mango. Mango actually happens to be the most popular fruit in the world. I didn't know that until I Ooh. learned it recently, but maybe in the United States it's not, not as 
common as bananas or apples. But So let's say a friend tells you about a mango. You have a big conversation about what it tastes. You start reading books on mangoes. You can go on and on you, for years doing that on that level and never know what really what a mango tastes like. And you can become very frustrated in the process. You know, this marvelous, incredible thing that I've been reading about and thinking about, and now I know the whole botany of it and the chemistry, but I still don't know what it tastes like. So you have to taste it. So, right. so obviously you can get stuck on that kind of level of understanding with right. regard to spirituality without having the actual experience that it's all about. Right. And I think the the spiritual community is rife with that. So there's a lot of people stuck in that way, you're saying. And they're talking a good game. Yeah, yeah. And they're, many of them are teaching. But there's a, there's a whole lot of words coming out, and there is not a lot of mango eating. <laughs> well, I agree with you. So, I yeah. agree with you. I started doing this thing, you know, Bat Gap, and I started running into particularly those who are categorized as Neo-Advaita people. And uh, I felt like... And then I found this Tibetan Buddhist saying, which is, don't mistake understanding for realization. And then the second part was, don't mistake realization for liberation. But I ended up feeling that a lot of people have read too many books and gone to too many satsangs and have gotten really good with the terminology and have kind of psyched themselves into mistaking an, an understanding, which they've immersed themselves in, for the actual realization of that to which the understanding pertains. It's kind of mind-boggling to me. Because it seems to me that the more one experiences other than the personality or what other than the, the apparent, the less certain of right and wrong and what is, the less certain one becomes. And so, you know, just earlier I was seeing somebody post on Facebook, they posted some spiritual quote and then somebody else commented no that's wrong and then they went off into that and then the other one said right you were right that's wrong and I'm thinking really so not knowing the difference between a, per a point of view and the truth that's where you know who knows what the truth is we all have a point of view yeah who knows who's right if anyone it's like the blind men arguing over the elephant right Exactly, and would very dogmatically, they're absolutely positive. Yeah. And so it seems to me that the more in touch we get with stepping outside as best as, best as possible, mm -hmm. stepping outside these limited, this limited hardware, mm -hmm. the more accepting of uncertainty we can be. Yeah. There was a... Actually, my little blurb on Skype is a line from the Incredible String Band. Uh, if you remember them, they, the line is, whatever you think, it's more than that. And the Sargadatta, everybody's heard of the Sargadatta, said the ability to appreciate paradox and ambiguity is a sign of spiritual maturity. And I think if you appreciate paradox and ambiguity, then you're not going to be adamant about this or that position. You're going to have a both-and kind of appreciation. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would say that both and is the best I could do. To do. I, I mean, I've written a few times about the word simultaneously. You know, that we can live this dream and go to the supermarket and drive on the right side of the road and tie our shoes and yell at our kids and walk the dog. We can do all of that and also 
occasionally have this sense of what we really are, which is not this. Yeah. Here's a line that so. you wrote. I wrote it, I copied it down because I thought it was good. You said, even when there are triggers, there's always a simultaneous not Judy that is fine with what's happening. Can, can be riled up and not riled simultaneously. Right. Yeah. You know, I moved to Philadelphia last month from California, beautiful, sunny, idyllic California, to be here with my mother who is sick. Uh-huh. And, you know, there's nothing, that famous Ram Dass quote, there's nothing like family to set a person off. Yeah. And here I am, I have voluntarily moved closer to my mother. Mm-hmm. And so triggers can happen, and I can watch Judy react, and also not and that's, I, I think, um, I think as long as we are human, I think that's, that's it. It's both. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, well, we can flesh that out a little bit, but I think you're right. I think that's what is meant by witnessing. You've heard the term witnessing. I don't think witnessing is something you are supposed to do. I think it's something, it's, it's an orientation that can characterize your experience at a certain stage where in the midst of any kind of chaos or situation, there's this sort of not Judy kind of perspective at the same time. You know, this, there's this silence that's unperturbed by it all. Right. Yeah. And, you know, knock yourself out. Go ahead and yell at the, the kids or whatever it is you do. But, and also, okay. Yeah. Now, the fleshing out I would want to do on that is that... Um, I think that there can be an evolution in, into, in terms of how readily one is triggered. Some people just fly off the handle at, at anything, and I don't think that shows a very mature development of, there we go with the development word again, <laughs> of, of personality or development even in, in, this, in the sense that spirituality should ultimately entail. It indicates a lot of conditioning still and a lot of reactivity. And that kind of stuff can actually be grown out of through the proper means, I think. It does seem to relax. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would use the words grown out of, kind of going back to our previous conversation, but I think it does relax. And I remember a long, long time ago, Byron Katie was, I was at some event of hers, and she was talking about, it was just after Thanksgiving, she was talking about the fact that her Thanksgiving turkey had caught fire in the (laughs) oven. And she had gone running through the house looking for Stephen. I don't know if the, her husband. I don't know right. if those are the words she used, but essentially she went running through the house looking for Stephen. Sure. And I raised my hand and I said, "So when you were looking for Stephen and the the kitchen was starting to catch on fire, did you think you were really there?" And basically, her answer was yes and no. I mean, I've come to understand that myself. So, triggers, there's a fire in the kitchen. Yeah, I'm triggered. Yep. Okay. I mean, I think that that comes with humans. Yeah. And in fact, if it didn't... There'd be something wrong. Right? Do we all have to resort to a cave in order to be able to access or to to live a... The kind of life you're describing where you're mature and you're in touch with that end also. Do we have to reduce these humans' lives to 
such small stimulus in order to make sure triggers don't happen? If we do, then I would say it's not a very well-established condition. It's, it's not well-integrated. If, if it can yeah. be blown away by the slightest thing, then you ain't got it. I mean, and, and why would you even want it? I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, if you have to reduce experience to something so small in order to not have triggers go off, mm -hmm. what are you left with as a human? Yeah. No, I, I mean, just to quote the Gita again, I mean, the whole story was about somebody who was supposed to start a fight a battle. And uh, he was told to just, uh, you know, get, get yourself established in, in pure consciousness or yoga or the transcendent and then go ahead and fight the battle. And the battle's going to be intense, but you'll be able to do it with equanimity if you have gotten this foundation established. I mean, I guess my experience, for whatever that's worth, is that when I can get Judy out of the way, it's just a little clearer. It's just clearer. And what do you mean, and, Judy, out of the way? What's that like? Well, I mean, Judy's um, like everybody else. Judy's a product of conditioning and language and education and happy things happening and unhappy things happening. And, you know, Judy's like your dogs barking at the UPS guy. <laughs> they learn to do that, and then they have a good time, and they enjoy it, and they keep it up. Yeah. The and also is, I find the key to peace. Judy was an unhappy creature before understanding that this isn't all right. she is. Yeah. So to my mind, what you mean by getting Judy out of the way is not to eliminate Judy, but to right. not have Judy be the whole show, but to have the deeper dimension there simultaneously along with the Judy dimension so that that the Judy experience doesn't overshadow the reality of the situation, or that could be phrased in different ways, yeah. Right, but it's essentially, I think we're in agreement. And I just want to say, too, that I'm really enjoying all your quoting, all these various sources, etc., because I can't do that, I don't do that, I don't have the background for it anyway. So um, it's fun for me to hear all that, and I'm glad you're doing it and not waiting for me to. Good, well, if you keep at it long <laughs> enough, I might quote Curly of the Three Stooges or something. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> that I'll be with you right there yeah. on. Actually, so, he has yeah. a great one. He, he said he, there was a situation the Stooges were involved in and they were trying to come up with a solution and Curly was standing there squinching up his face in different ways and finally he said, I'm trying to think but nothing happens. Right? <laughs> I mean, everybody's aspiring to that here in the spiritual scene. So. <laughs> yeah, he was enlightened. That's for sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And here we could say yuck, yuck, and see right on. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so this is fun. We're having fun. And just to remind those who are watching, if you feel like posing a question uh, that we'll, I'll bring up during the interview, go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, and there's a form at the bottom of that page through which you could submit your question. And that's true of any of the interviews that I do through Skype. So, you know, you were saying earlier about how you would never say to somebody that there's more and that it would be depressing to them or you wouldn't want to depress them by saying such a thing. And as you were saying that, I, was, I can see your perspective. It's the, the, the both-and thing. But also, my reaction when I hear somebody say that is usually that I find it depressing. And there are people who say, this is it. This is all there is. You know, Just whatever you're experiencing, that's it. And 
I guess we're coming back to a point we've already covered a little bit, but I just want to cover a little bit more, which is to say that there's a tremendous realm of possibility in terms of the perspective one can have as one lives one's life, in terms of the inner experience one has as one goes through one's day. And I, I, find, it, I would find it discouraging to say, well, what you're experiencing right now, this is it. Don't expect that any, there can be anything more than that. Okay. I wrote a recent um, mind tickler, my, my blog, and I did not send this to you, and you, I'm sure you haven't seen it, about my dad, mm -hmm. who hit 85 and who felt that there was no more coming. Mm. There was nothing to look forward to, was his expression. You know, there was nothing to aim for. There was nothing to aspire to. There was no better place to get to. This was it. And rather than accept that, he killed himself. And I'm saying that without any sadness for him. This was what he wanted. Okay. What I found is that when people experience a sadness or a depression or a disappointment or a, but I don't want it to be like that in answer to this is it. And I'm not saying that's you're doing. I'm, I'm exaggerating mm -hmm. some of what I've heard. Um, but when people do experience this is it, which is simply true, this right? Is, this is it so far, yeah. Based upon what you're experiencing, this is it. This is it. Yeah. Breathe in, breathe out. Right. This is it. You, have much, you don't have much choice in the moment. All the rest is thought. So what's wrong with thought? Well, there's nothing wrong with thought, except that it's rarely kind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... When people, again, in my experience, when people experience uh, a sadness, a depression, a, a mini tantrum to this is it, mm -hmm. you know, but no, but there has to be more. Like the infomercial, but wait, there's more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when people experience that, they are, they stop there. They don't, because if they get stuck there, if you actually, again, I'll use words I don't like to use. If you actually accept or surrender to the, the, to the itness of this moment, mm -hmm. because truly this is all we get yeah. right now. This is yeah. it. Yeah. When that is actually accepted and not fought, but no, this can't be it. But I don't want this to be it. When you fight that... Yeah, and that's not what I'm saying, but continue. Okay, you're bringing... It's, you're guaranteed to be unhappy. Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't advocate fighting what you're experiencing right now. Um, you know, that's going to make you miserable. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be unnatural. You're going to be at war with yourself. Just to go back to the education metaphor, you know, if you're in the fifth grade, if you think... Fifth grade sucks. I hardly know anything compared to what you know these Einstein knew or whatever. Uh, you know, I hate the fifth grade. You're not going to do so well in, in the fifth grade if that's your. And you're going to be a miserable. And you're going to be, be a miserable, miserable kid. You know? Dream is going to suck. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's not to say you you may not go on to get a PhD in physics and know know as much as Einstein did. Um, but that you know you got to do. Well, here's a quote for you. You you like quotes. Um, this is, this is from the Gita again. It says, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. So it's saying, you know, this is it. 
basically, this is, this is the thing that you actually have a handle on. Make the most of it. There will be fruits, but you don't have any control over those. But the best you can do is make the most of, of the moment, what you're in. I would even take issue, dare I take issue with the Gita, uh -huh. That's okay. um, that we don't even control the action. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Go on. <laughs> There's science showing. Who did I just, I just had this conversation yeah, with somebody just like a day or two. Yeah, that thing where you have the thought to move your arm like five milliseconds before you move your arm. That's been sort of disproven, but there, there, there is, okay. yeah, go ahead. Okay. The thing is, you have the thought to move your arm. Where did the thought come from? What generated that? Did you do that? Yes and no. <laughs> okay. We got an and also going on. Yeah. And, and okay, so if I tell you to have a thought right now, uh -huh. go. Okay, I'm having one. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that second or beat where you had to wait for it to come? Yeah, but there's a reason for that. Okay. Medication? No. <laughs> the reason is thoughts don't come full-blown into the mind. They start out subtle and they, they get increasingly manifest until they reach the perceptual th threshold at which we can recognize them. What are you basing that on? Experience and some understanding that there's a realm of, of subtlety, to, to, to like an ocean where you have, let's say, big bubbles breaking the surface and then smaller bubbles as you go down to the, to the ocean floor. There's a range of subtlety to the mind that one can explore and traverse and you know, one can actually go beyond entirely and reach a state beyond thought where there isn't any thought. I've experienced that many times. Okay, so I guess my question for you is, does the ocean generate the bubbles? Okay, let's do paradox again, uh, and I'll reference the Gita again. There was that verse I just read, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. And then there are many verses which go on and on about how you are not the actor, you're not doing anything, all the action is done by, the, they call it the gunas of nature, and if you take yourself to be the actor, then you're deluded. So it's a matter of, I think perspective, which where we want to take our stand, and, and both are true. Maybe, maybe the one you're advocating here uh, is more true, deep, more deeper truth, but there's also the relative truth uh, that we experience in practical daily life. Understood. And in that relative daily life, I think I scratch my nose by choice. Yeah, yeah, and and that's okay. I mean, you know, we we need that to function. Again, I choose to make a right turn here. Shall I have and, lasagna for dinner or you know pea soup? Let me think about it for a minute. Ah, I, right. I had lasagna yesterday. I'll have pea soup. Although the you know if it's slowed down, you can see that the preference shows up all by itself. Yeah, and then we we claim credit for it. I did mm -hmm. this. I made a decision. Right. Or I had an idea. So, you know, people often ask me because I, uh, you've seen some of those mind ticklers that I've written and they scan all kinds of, they jump from subject to subject, week to week. And I've long ago given up trying to control what is going to come out of me on those things. Mm -hmm. I'll often have a plan 
and I think I'm going to write about such and such today, and I sit down, and that just ain't happening, and before you know it, it's about my dad deciding that there was nothing to look forward to, and again, there is a lot of peace in not being the one in charge. Yes. And also, if your goal, this thing you're aspiring to, one aspires to, if your goal is to see the not selfness involved in all of this, mm -hmm. then when you don't see yourself as the one in charge, you have perception options you didn't have before. So this is an example where I said it's all words, it's all language. Our language is geared to make it appear as if this is me and I am a one and I am a person and you are a person and you are over there and you are not here and we are not the same and language is designed to do that. When I started to go through the transition of, um, you know, feeling like I was in charge, that I was holding the reins, I was running the show, to kind of something much bigger than me, as it were, running the show, there was a lot of seesawing back and forth and a lot of sometimes falling into passivity where I wasn't taking initiative because I expected you know, the powers that be to motivate me or something. And other times where I would sort of be gripping and pushing and you know, trying to insist that things happen a particular way. So there was a lot of kind of like vacillation during that transition period. Now it's pretty smooth, but I think many people do go through this where there's a relaxing of, of the reins or putting the car on autopilot or whatever. Right. Uh, and, and you're, you're kind of nervous at first. Ooh, the car's going to crash if I let it. And, and so you, you grab the wheel again. And there's also a whole bunch of, I don't like this. Wait yeah. a minute. I can't control my fate. I can't control what happens to me. And so, again, one of the things that I also work with a whole lot of people who have lost motivation or who procrastinate. Yeah. And this is often common in, in the spiritual scene where people get a, a sense of, I'm not doing it, so what the hell. Yes. And that what the hell piece is a pout. It's I, a tantrum. Yeah. It's a way for thought or the mind to not accept and not surrender. Well, if I can't control this, then I just won't do anything. Yeah. It's basically what that comes down to. Mm -hmm. I agree that you can wait, you know, you can say, well, if I can't control anything, I might as well just sit here. But that's a trick of thought. It's a trick. Yeah. It comes down to lack of integration again, perhaps lack of... Here's what it is. If our perspective can expand to the point where it incorporates both the individual and the universal to a sufficient degree, then one can be motivated like a son of a gun, pursuing whatever one is you know, wired to pursue, and yet at the same time very much surrendered and letting God sort of hold the... There's a saying, Brahman is the charioteer. So the, that bigger reality is actually guiding the reins, holding the, guiding the chariot. And, and yet, somehow that's not incompatible with personal motivation. Right. Because what we 
do, mm-hmm. whether we do something or we don't, whether we tie our shoes or we don't, whether we get motivated and get that PhD or we don't. Again, I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not an expert. I wouldn't be able to define Brahman, although I'm getting an idea from Just what you're saying. Let's say the wholeness, would say. Okay. The, the so, vast intelligence or whatever. It's good with either one. Get the PhD or sit on the couch. But you know, I does think, it have a preference? I think all of Indian society fell into a um, a kind of a lethargy based upon this misunderstanding that that somehow uh, being spiritual meant not not doing, not, not accomplishing, doing, you know, yeah. becoming a renunciate, not not sort of having initiative and motivation, and, and it really had an impact on the whole civilization. So I think that. Um, Personally, I don't think that spiritual development or whatever you want to call it is at all incompatible with accomplishment and motivation and enthusiasm and any of that Agreed. stuff. It Agreed. actually can enhance it if, if you go about it right. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that the key to whether that is torture or painful mm-hmm. or not, as you are accomplishing and as you are getting to do things, uh, the difference between whether that hurts or not has to do with whether what's here is good enough. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. I once heard humility defined as the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. You can insist all you want. Yeah, right, right. So you that know, gets into the Katie territory again, you know, just uh, if you argue with reality, you lose every time. It hurts. And again, when I'm working, I work with people who hurt, and and yeah. it just you can keep it up, this, you know, Brahmin or is it something bigger or whatever it, that is. It's fine with that, but it hurts. If this dream hurts and you don't want it to hurt anymore, maybe it's time to not hurl ourselves at that wall. <laughs> right, or make sure that what you're that you're actually experiencing what all these concepts signify rather than just dwelling on the concepts. Here's a question that came in from Jay in Victoria, British Columbia, which is right up your alley. He said, I've read dozens of spiritual books and know the jargon. I have focused on a couple of books on surrender. However, I still struggle with depression. My main focus for the last six years is on being present. Although I find that I am disassociative and not interested in anything. This is what we were talking about. He said, how do I infuse joy and happiness in the present moment? You're not the boss of that. You can't aim for joy and happiness and expect to reach it. And I'm making that face as I say that because I'm sure that you have countless listeners out there going, that can't be right. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Well, maybe it depends on how you aim. Well, again, it's. I'm going to refer to it as mind, and I'm going to refer to it as a real thing. It's not. It's another concept. But we experience it as if it's real, just like we experience this as if this is what we are. And it has a million tricks. If you're experiencing depression when you think you are surrendering, you're not actually surrendering. Good point. You're fighting it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, except that it hurts. And so what I have found is that you can't come at this stuff head on. You have to trick mind. You have to trick it. It's not going to relinquish its domain happily. 
And so... Uh, How do you trick it? Well, I'm going to be careful how I answer this because if I say too much about how I trick it, it won't work. In other words, once mind is aware of what's going on, it, it won't work anymore. But you keep it busy with a project and you let the grown-ups talk. You know, that means nothing. <laughs> you might need to explain what you mean by that. Um, let me think of an example. I often, when I'm working with people, will ask a bunch of questions. And I get their mind busy with answering the questions. You know, it's kind, this is kind of the way hypnosis works, although I am not hypnotizing people. I am not a hypnotist. But this is how hypnosis works. Essentially, is that with words and with a, a few possibly actions, but mostly with words, the hypnotist occupies the conscious mind with a task. And at the same time, simultaneously, directs the unconscious, so to speak, because uh, I'm going to put that in quotes, directs another part of the brain or another part of the experience in a different direction. So the mind is all very busy solving this problem, clucking like a chicken or whatever it happens to be. And yet there's an access of something else. So that is, you know, essentially you're accessing the right side of the brain when you hypnotize. You're keeping the left side busy, and you're accessing the right side. So that's how hypnosis works. Um, so when I'm working with people, I'm, I, am, uh, I really understand. I mean, I work with a whole lot of people who say what Jay from Vancouver said, which is that he's, he's certainly trying everything. Um, but doing this yourself, the, the mind just simply will not let you see its roadblocks. It wants the roadblocks to work. And so you, you need kind of an outside that mind way of accessing something else. Hmm. You need to keep it busy. Yeah. Interesting. What you said kind of reminds me of the way a mantra works or can work, which is that um, you actually do engage the mind in thinking this thing, um, but it's, it's, um, it begins to um, settle down to more and more refined impulses of, of the thought and, and uh, you know, sort of becomes a vehicle to take one to a deep state. But it's, it, it's an activity. It's, it's sort of like right. one might say they're standing in the middle of a mud puddle, let's say, and, they, and someone is at, out at the edge of the mud puddle. The person in the mud puddle says, how do I get out of this mud puddle? And the guy says, well, take a step. But wait a minute, you're asking me to step in the mud again. Yeah, but just take the step. <laughs> okay, now take another step. And right, right. You know, eventually you'll be at the edge of the mud puddle, you'll be out of it. Right. So it's, it's, um, it sounds very similar. Again, I've got limited experience with meditating. Mm -hmm. But what you're describing does sound similar. If you occupy the rational mind with a task... I mean, well, you're it's not rational you're, in this case, but it is a task. Well, it, it is an activity of some sort. The thinking mind—that's what I mean by rational. Yeah. You know, and you can do this all kinds of ways. It's—I um, remember years ago there was a, a workout program I was doing, and I still kind of do it once in a while, and it still functions the same way, where I'm so focused 
on the pain of that workout, that the whole thing becomes a kind of meditation. You're pulled to the mantra, Mm -hmm. you focus on the mantra, and it frees up a different, let's call it a different part of the brain. Yeah. You can do that with hypnosis, you can do that with a workout, you can do that with um, some kind of creative thing like painting or uh, make music or whatever. There's all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be meditation and it doesn't have to be spiritual. Right. But you can occupy the thinking mind with a task and finally get it out of the way a little bit. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like you put a sign on the wall saying, post no bills, you know, and then that keeps people from posting all the other signs. <laughs> right, even though that is, of course, a post yeah, or a yeah. bill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A few minutes ago you said something about you can aim at the target, but you won't necessarily hit the target. Do you remember what you said just then? I think I may have said that you can't go at it directly. You can't uh, say, I'm going to aim for joy. Right. It's, it's going to be very hard to hit joy yeah. by aiming for it directly. I'm not saying it's impossible. Nothing's impossible, but it's, it's going to be hard. And when you have somebody with a question like Jay's, I think that I just want to say that, Jay, that is extremely common what you wrote, and it's what I do all day. You know, I hear from people with that exact story yeah. all day long. That's what I do. Well, I have a metaphor for you on that one. Let's say you have a bow and arrow, and you can aim the, bow, aim the arrow at the target, but you're not going to hit the target unless you pull the arrow back on the bow before letting it go. Um, then chances are you might hit the target. Um, and so how that relates is what all the scriptures say about kingdom of heaven is within you, satchitananda, you know, inner bliss and all that stuff. From my own experience, I fully ascribe to that notion, um, having experienced that inner bliss. But you don't just sort of get there by wanting it now or right there has to be an you artful go, means of, yes of you can't go at it straight it. on yeah and i will just say i mean this is not to your point i don't want to take too great a detour with this but the word the, the idea of inner mm-hmm. i think is an additional roadblock kind of yeah i mean because yeah where is it in the middle of your brain or something or in your stomach or <laughs> right I ask clients this all the time. If we took you to an MRI or we took you to a surgeon and we cut you open, would it be in there? This was one of the flaws, in my opinion, of the work and the Kilby inquiry, Mm -hmm. is when your focus is inward, Mm -hmm. you are focused on this character. Not necessarily. You can go beyond the character. There's a verse from the Gita that describes it like being like a tortoise withdrawing all its limbs sort of within its shell. There's a sort of a thing that can happen where the senses, which are ordinarily outer-directed, can take a 180-degree turn. Not permanently, but just for the sake of sort of having that inner experience and then come out again. You end up sort of soaking it up, as it were, and, and then it, it, it plays out in daily life. It which, again, I do understand, of course, because I live in this world like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But I think that... The, you know, if what you're looking for is enlightenment, the concept of inner and going inwards will get in your way, in my opinion, in my experience. 
um, the because you again, it, it was you, you end up fixating more on your individuality if you do that, right? Yes, and how it feels and how it thinks and whether it's thinking good thoughts or stressful thoughts or too many thoughts or not enough space between thoughts and whether it's, uh, but you, this is what I mean by the head-on thing. You can't, you can't get at it head-on. Um, and so when we're looking for inner bliss, mm -hmm. the language alone solidifies what is not solid. Yeah, and language has its limitations as we both know. And when I say inward, it's not, I don't mean an, an actually solidification of individuality. I mean a, more of a, a relaxing of it, an arrival at something which is not individual at all, but universal. Um, and I do understand that this yeah. is not where you were headed with it. Right. You know, that what you were saying is that, you know, if you're going to look outward for your bliss, Gonna have a hard time. I mean, here's the thing that seems to me from working with all these people is that, you know, we all have our preferences for how we want our lives to go. We want our children to like us, and we want the dog to not bark, and we want, <laughs> you know, we want our wives to not have lung conditions, and we want to have lasagna instead of uh, pizza or pea soup or whatever. I mean, we we all have our preferences. I like green and not yellow, totally or, or whatever, right? And then when we want the outside world to supply our likes and dislikes, I want him to love me, I want the dog, I want my children to get along, whatever. When we move our, ex our preferences out and then we are dependent on the situations to happen in order for us to be content, yeah. we're kind of screwed. We are, yeah, because we don't have control over that stuff. And things happen, bad things, things we don't like, things that don't measure up to our preferences happen every day. Right. Which is why all the traditions say don't put your eggs in that basket. Don't expect your fulfillment to be found in the outer world because it's always right. going to change. You know, this I'll, I'll be happy once my husband is nice to me thing, it, yeah. you know. It, what happens is the husband starts being nice to you if you're lucky. And then it's something else. So if you have to describe that bliss as inner or not, it's more accurate, I would say, to say inner. Uh, but it's, in, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's a potential roadblock. Yeah. Well, the word has its limitations. And like any word, if we're going to use it, we better make sure that we're defining it the same way or we're, or we're talking past each other. Um, but I think the way you and I understand it is just that... Um, you know, there is, well, what's that Rumi quote, you know, beyond right and wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there, something like that. So the, the traditional understandings is that there is a field which is fundamental to the universe and fundamental to who and what we are, and that that field has some qualities, and that one of those qualities is bliss or happiness, and that if you can get in touch with that field, you will enjoy that. And um, that's my experience, and it's the experience of of many, many people. So I'm, I'm not just speaking hypothetically here, and neither have all the hundreds and thousands of people throughout history who have described their experience. So I have a question for you. Yes. I mean, I'm not taking issue with what you said. And of course, if we get to have to experience bliss as opposed to anything else, why wouldn't we want bliss? Yeah, and bliss, again, one of those words that we better be careful how we're, we're saying here, but go ahead. But the question is, if you are consciousness, 
Would you have a preference for bliss over pain? Relatively, I think you would. Jesus said, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to get crucified. He knew that what that was going to be like. But then eventually he just said, all right, God's will be done. Sure, and you have a, a preference of being in a nice, comfortable bed rather than sleeping on a bunch of, a bed of nails, I suppose. Right, but <laughs> uh, I guess what I'm asking is... You still is have your relative druthers. But the relative is the key word there, because is the preference coming, is, is it consciousness's preference or Rick's preference? Good question, and I think I know where you're going with this, because I re read one of your blog posts and you talked about, you know, all the yucky stuff that happens in the world. You know, the, the Holocaust and the, all the horrible things that we could enumerate. Um, and if everything is consciousness, if everything is God or whatever, then it seems like God doesn't have a preference because all that stuff happens. Here it is. Yeah. 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 And I don't want to be glib in trying to answer this, but let's reference our own experience. Would you rather sleep under a bridge in the freezing cold, or would you rather sleep in a nice warm bed? Well, are you asking Judy? Yeah, Judy. Judy has definite preferences. <laughs> Judy would much rather sleep in a warm bed. Judy would rather be in California. Yeah. Judy would rather experience bliss than pain. But I'm asking you if what you understand consciousness to be, if it has a preference. My understanding, for what it's worth, and this is just an understanding, is that if you're going to have a relative creation, as we apparently have, a universe, then there are going to have to be pairs of opposites. If there's going to be fast, there has to be slow, hot, cold, big, small, all the various pairs of opposites we could enumerate, and we could go on and on for hours enumerating them. Um, so suffering, happiness, you know, misery, joy, or whatever, there's going to be this spectrum. And so does that mean consciousness endorses suffering? I think it means that consciousness incorporates all the diversity and duality within itself. Consciousness, Brahman, God, whatever. Um, it, okay. Yeah, it incorporates so, all the diversity. And, so we're, we're in agreement on that. And so uh -huh. the question then is, even when there's suffering, mm -hmm. can it be enough? Now, here's, here's my answer to that, which is my best understanding of the situation is all beings possess a natural tendency to want to experience greater happiness, greater joy, greater fulfillment, and so on. And that I kind of see the whole universe as one big evolution machine in which greater and greater complexity and of forms has evolved out of homogenous hydrogen over billions of years. Um, to the point where we can have a conversation like this, or we have Mozart, or we have Einstein, or we have all, all these amazing uh, realizations in which consciousness is able to sort of live, uh, enjoy a living reality, uh, as opposed to just being flat on manifest. I thought to myself before we started this call that I have to be careful not to turn this around and start interviewing you. <laughs> And it looks like that's where I'm headed because I, sp I spend my time asking a lot of questions. And so let me make this as a statement instead of a question. Yeah, and I got too spaced out on that last answer. I kind of got out there, but go, go ahead. No worries. What it seems to me is that the imposition of 
preferences mm -hmm. and the and even what you're calling realization that consciousness needs none of that it's it it is what it is it's enormously infinite and that it includes every color every mm -hmm. feeling every sound mm -hmm. and every preference yeah and so it appears to me just simply by the fact that it exists that suffering is welcome. The desire for bliss is a human thing. You may be right. I'll revert back to Maharishi again here. He used to say that the purpose of creation is the expansion of happiness. And, um, and they use the term leela in, in the Sanskrit or Vedic tradition, which means play. And play is usually associated with happiness or fun. Um, and obviously, Shakespeare wrote comedies and he wrote tragedies. You know, there were, you know, King Lear was not a happy camper. And I, back to my point about necessity for pairs of opposites, if there's going to be diversity, the play is not necessarily always going to be pretty or enjoyable. And if God alone is the ultimate reality, then yeah, God has preferences because we have preferences and we are ultimately that. And obviously, it, so preferences are being are being had, and others others have a preference for heroin or for you know sadomasochism or for murder or for rather dark things. Um, presumably, they get some kind of perverted pleasure out of those experiences. But do they get bliss? I guess is the question. Well, I guess I guess where I'm going is that I think the aim for bliss leaves out a whole lot of experience. And yeah, but do you want fact, all that experience that it leaves well, out? Well, again, now we're talking about preference. And when we are run by, driven by, our preferences for happiness mm -hmm. and bliss, we eliminate... this becomes less available to us. For the sake of those just listening in audio, you're kind of ref okay, gesturing um, to signify the, 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 the unboundedness or the Brahman or whatever. Right. It's less available while we're aiming for bliss. We're eliminating vast quantities of experience that obviously, again, I'll use words I rarely use, consciousness has no problem with. As a matter of fact, consciousness experience endorses this or it wouldn't exist yeah i mean i'm i'm all for bliss i'll take bliss over as much as the next guy uh -huh. but the drive to bliss is a human limiting often comes with pain non-essential i'm making this face because i know this is not your point of view. No, it, it, um, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a subtle thing I think we're trying to put our fingers on here. You know, there's a, um, there's a verse from the Rig Veda. It says something like, the frog desires water, the physician disease. Um, and it goes on, enumerates how different types of beings desire or enjoy different kinds of things. Um, 
I mean, let's say we have a choice between listening to Beethoven's Sixth Symphony or some really intense heavy metal thing. Now, you know, maybe you and I would prefer Beethoven, but there's some people who are going to get more enjoyment out of the out of the heavy metal. So it, there's individual preferences, and as they say, there's no accounting for tastes. But I think what I'm getting at is that aside from all those relative preferences and individual considerations, there's a fundamental intrinsic reality to the universe. And one of its characteristics is said to be ananda, or bliss. And if one can get in touch with that, that regardless of one's individual proclivities and interests and pursuits, there will be sort of an innate fundamental happiness that dwells in the heart or wherever it dwells that is abiding, regardless of the changing circumstances of life. I think that's a nice theory. But it's also something that people experience. I think for a large number of people, the drive towards bliss is misery-making. We were talking about a bliss and intrinsic happiness. Yeah, whether there is any such thing inherent in the fundamental nature of reality or whether it's all just brain chemistry and you know dopamine and serotonin and this and that and uh, a chemical thing perhaps that might be one angle of looking at it just like I'm not a, a spiritual scholar I'm not a scientist or, or a biologist either so I don't I don't know I think that when again all I can speak of is my experience as long as I think I am this and as long as I'm focused on this is experience mm -hmm. and what it thinks and whether it likes it and how it feels I am going to miss what you're calling that intrinsic happiness these characters are by nature the mind is unhappy I guess and I realize I'm inviting an argument with that. But as long as we think what we are is this. I am Judy, you are Rick. Yeah. As long as we think this is what we are. Intrinsic happiness is going to be an elusive goal. I totally agree. In fact, there's an Upanishad which says there's no joy in smallness. You know, but aiming for bigness is good luck with that. Uh, I mean, again, you, you have to come at it sideways. And I understand that's not necessarily your experience, and I understand that that's not necessarily everybody's experience. One of the things that I have found and was a great relief for me when I came to see this is that the experience of this existence is there are so many versions it's completely infinite and so whatever you have discovered for yourself in terms of what bliss is what enlightenment is what understanding is that's been done yeah. it's not going to look like that for anybody else you know when you talk about an intrinsic happiness and inner bliss and you've experienced this I think that when people listen to these kinds of things and they start aiming for that for themselves, they're aiming for your experience. Yeah. And and good luck with that. You know. No, I agree. Um, we shouldn't aim for somebody else's experience, which is not to say there aren't 
universal truths or patterns. But there probably are an infinite number of ways of driving from Philadelphia to San Diego if, if, if you take into account all the different roads that exist. But right. there are certain tried and true methods that are going to get you there faster, you know, certain I-80 or whatever. Houston Smith or Aldous Huxley or one of those guys talked about the, the perennial philosophy and how the same sort of truths seem to come up in one culture after another, cultures that are, didn't have any communication with one another. People discover the same things. Well, yeah. And, I mean, it's hard. On one hand, that's hard to argue with. On the other hand, I think that... Um, Again, as long as we're focused on this, this, what this thing wants, and I get that this thing wants bliss, mm -hmm. we are bound and limited and driven and missing vast quantities of experience. And again, I realize this is what your show is all about. But the idea that bliss is the goal and bliss is really essentially the only thing acceptable, you're basically saying... But I'm not saying that. Well, I? I mean, well, I don't know. When you, when you talk about, even when you talk about happiness as intrinsic, what does that mean? Is it intrinsic to the human? I'd say it's intrinsic to the ultimate reality and that the human can interface with that ultimate reality uh, to greater or lesser degrees of clarity and the greater the, greater the, inter the clarity of the interface, the more inner joy will be experienced. Okay. So again, I'm landing on that inner word well, as opposed to uh, as opposed to through the external, you know, objects from uh, brought to right. us through the senses. Yeah. I understand. I really think it's a limiting word, though. Probably is. Um, All words are. It, it, well, that's absolutely true. One of the ways that I do work with people and that I do come at this sideways is via the words that I hear. Mm -hmm. The limits of the language are a way to trick the mind. For instance, let me just give you a quick example. So if somebody says to me, I feel like I have an elephant on my chest. I feel heavy. And I say, well, is there an elephant on your chest? And they say, it feels like it. And they think that's an answer. And so I've come to see that when somebody says to me, feels like or seems like, what they are basically saying is that they know it's not true and that they're willing to pretend. Well, they're using a metaphor. I know, but what is a metaphor? It's a step removed from experience, and in the metaphor, they are creating... An experience. So and so, they're probably trying you, to describe some heaviness or some. 
pressure well, or something like that that they're experiencing. Maybe it would be better to use more precise words than elephant. What I'm trying to say is, when we refer to bliss or happiness as intrinsic or as inner, we are basically saying suffering, no, only bliss will do. And here is existence or consciousness or God or awareness or whatever you want to call it, providing so much more than that. And we're saying, no, 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 no tears, tears bad, no bad. No, no, no. no not, or, not necessarily. Or I mean, not, no realization, realization good, no realization bad. That's a human value judgment on an experience. Let's take Ramana Maharshi. He died of cancer. It was uh, very painful. Um, he was definitely experiencing pain. And, but people would ask him about his experience and... You know, he would make it perfectly clear that the pain was rather um, superficial by comparison with his predominant experience, which he probably would have felt comfortable using the word bliss. Um, so, you know, the two were somehow coexisting, and right. the deeper dimension was his predominant reality. So, this is an example I use often with clients, occasionally, I guess. There's an American Indian tribe, I want to say the Sioux, mm -hmm. that have a ritual called the Sun Ritual. I have friends that... who've actually done it and have the scars to prove it. <sighs> okay, so it, you know, here they are intentionally and purposefully bringing torturous physical pain mm -hmm. to their bodies in order to occupy the mind with the pain so that they can transcend it and experience what you're calling bliss. They did this on purpose. Yeah. And that was the only reason that they did this that they did this ceremony was to experience that you know, I'm using these words again, these are not words I often use, but that sense of connection with something bigger, that transcendence, that sense of what they really are as opposed to this character hung by mm -hmm. their nipples in the bright sunlight, right? Okay. So what you're describing with Ramana is really something similar. When the body is occupied with sickness or pain, mm -hmm. it occupies the mind, gets it out of the way. And one can get in touch with something outside of this person, this self, this character. You can do that through pain. It's one of the ways that yeah. you can. And so when you're emotionally suffering... Are you sure it's a bad thing? Good point. I, I won't refute that. And obviously, aesthetic, aesthetics have inflicted pain on themselves in all kinds of traditions in order to do the very thing you're saying there. Exactly. And in Ramana's case, he was already enlightened years before he got the cancer. So it wasn't like the cancer gave him some new experience or anything. No, no, no. But I understand that. But... Um, you know, they're just one of the values I said to a client the other day who uh, had developed shingles. Mm -hmm. You know, thank goodness for the shingles. Thank yeah. goodness for the pain. It, it was, she was more peaceful dealing with that than she had been in quite some time, feeling much better physically. So, 
is happiness intrinsic is the question. Well, um, some would argue that all the painful experiences that everyone goes through, in fact all the experiences, have an evolutionary significance or value. And um, I wouldn't argue against that. Um, and it may not seem it at the time, but that they do. Your mother's scrubbing the dirt out from behind your ears and you're a little kid and you hate it and you're struggling and screaming, but it's actually good for you. So, I mean, and, and I mean, I think most of us have had experiences where we look back uh, and while we were in them, they were absolutely torturous. Yes, yeah. and then we look back uh, on them and think, well, and think, it's good that happened. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Awful. Uh, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And also not a bad thing. And so here is existence, consciousness, awareness, whichever word you want to put on it, mm -hmm. providing this vast range of experience, not just bliss. And here we are saying, yeah, okay, but I, I just want the bliss, please. I agree with what you're saying, and there's a bunch of good questions that came in that I want to get to, so okay. I'll just say one thing which is yeah. that this bliss word does not refer to pleasure or relative happiness. It refers to something that sort of is beyond the pairs of opposites. And in fact, someone named Pat from Stores, Connecticut said something similar in a question she just sent in, or he, maybe you're confusing pleasure and bliss. Intense pleasure can create addiction and intense craving. For me, bliss is the peaceful place, beyond, place the peaceful, balanced place where a quieter sort of joy comes up. So that's well put. It's it's something that is beyond the sort of relative pleasure thing that we. I yeah. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Of course, and also, I think the difference is in the value of all experience. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's rest that for a few minutes. Okay. And ask a couple. You more had of some other questions? questions. Yeah. Yeah. Arabic from Glendale, California asks. Is self-realization an attainment, or is it something that just happens? <laughs> I don't think anything's an attainment. I think it's all just something that happens. Everything in this experience. And so, I mean, I think you can busy yourself with trying to get there, and I realize this is not your point of view. Mm -hmm one can busy oneself with that for many years and still not attain. So what is the difference between the guy who does 50 million satsangs and meditates every day and the other guy who does 50 million satsangs and meditates every day? What is the difference between them? One attains and one doesn't. Does it have to do with them is the question, I guess. So I, I consider it all a happening and not an attainment. Yeah. Also, an attainment implies that a someone is getting a something, you know, exactly. like this thing that you get. And, um, you know, universally, when people wake up, almost, almost universally, they say, wow, this has always been here. I just didn't recognize it. Exactly, but that, that last piece of that sentence is the key to it. I didn't recognize it. So while we're waiting for realization and while we're waiting for understanding, it's here. Yeah. And so that's what I meant earlier when I said we don't need to understand this. 
we really don't. It's here already. Yeah. And whether we get it or not, it's still here. <laughs> it's true. We'd be in trouble <laughs> if it weren't. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a question from David in Fairfield, Iowa, which is where I am. He says, you mentioned, I presume it's Fairfield, Iowa, not, not Fairfield, Connecticut, which is where I was, grew up. But um, he said, you mentioned that the mind wants the roadblocks to work. What are the roadblocks and why does the mind want them to work? Well, I mean, if you, you know, when we talk about the mind as if it's a real thing, mm -hmm. it's not, but it, it can help to use the words in these ways as a way of understanding and dramatizing and picturing it. And so if you picture the mind as if it's a real thing, it wants to survive. What happens to it if you see that it's full of crap? It kind of goes poof, hmm. and it's not going to do that voluntarily. Yeah. I mean, are you alluding to the, the thing people often discuss about how the ego has this sort of desire to survive, and it feels threatened when right. it begins to you know, dissipate or dissolve, and a lot of fear can arise, and people right. cling they're to They're afraid of the yeah. void, or they're suddenly hungry for cookies, or, <laughs> you know, again, I see this all the time, and the, the thing is, it's a trick. Those feelings that people spend so much time, some of these methods, and again, this is why I don't do the Killaby thing anymore, mm -hmm. is all that focus, you know, oh, I have a feeling come up, and then they stop there, and yeah. they put all their attention on the feeling. Uh -huh. Mission accomplished. You don't go any further than that. And that sense of self is alive and well. Yeah. So, you know, fear does come up. Okay. So what? Yeah. Incidentally, I don't disagree with your premise that many, many things that people do probably reinforce the sense of self or individuation rather than, you know, enable one to relax into a more universal or unbounded state. I think that's probably very true. But you can't lump everything together in one big basket. There are just so many different things out there that people do. And you have everything from uh, Jonestown to <laughs> you know, some real healthy scenes that are techniques and practices that have really been fruitful for people. So I'd say maybe it's good to be discerning and discriminating and practical, and if something doesn't seem to be working, then move on, you know? For me, inherent in what you just said is, is a basic common sense. Yeah. If somebody has been seeking for 30 years, time for something different. Exactly. Because it's not working, yeah. right? And when I, uh, when I hear about these various... Um, uh, gurus and ashrams, you know, with all this sexual abuse and all this other stuff, I'm just kind of astonished at people following. I don't understand the following thing, and I should understand it because I kind of did it with Byron Katie for a while. Um, but there's, you know, I, I think this is what happens when we're looking to these teachers for answers, is we're, we're rife for uh, being you know, taken advantage of, yes, do something different. Yeah. If it's, you know, if I know people who have done the work of Byron Katie for 30 years, mm -hmm. and they'll very happily say, you know, I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. Why? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you'd have to sort of, I mean, I'm going to keep eating for the rest of my life um, because it seems to be necessary for me. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. But if for some reason it weren't, or that, then it's not a good example. But if, it, like the Byron Katie thing, if, if you don't seem to be benefiting anymore, you're just going through the same rote thing over and over again, and you don't seem to be... Well, and I'm sure they feel like they're benefiting, but the question is, there's a, the thing is, there's always another thought. There's always another stressful thought, there's always another thought, there's always another feeling. And if we get stuck focusing on that, yeah. you can never access anything more than the self. And you can make the, you can give the self a happier dream, and again, yay. But if what you want is to access what you're calling that intrinsic happiness, that that bigger, you know, how do you get there by worrying if a thought is true or not? Yeah. It, you know, I guess one way of putting it is if you think of traveling, let's say, someplace, and maybe it's a flight where you, it's, a tr it's a trip where you have to take three different flights, you know, a smaller commuter flight, then a bigger flight, then another smaller commuter flight or whatever. Each flight is essential to the journey. You wouldn't get there if you didn't take all three. But if you try to stay on any one of the planes, you know, after it has landed, or after it has taken you as far as it's going to take you, then you're not going to get to your destination. I think that not everybody's destination is the awakening. Again, using these are words I do not use ordinarily. But, <laughs> Corrupting you. Know, <laughs> well, you know, I'm trying. This is what I do. I speak your. I do my best to speak your language. Yeah. But if your destination, ideally, is that sense of awakening, can you get it by focusing on what you're thinking and what you're feeling and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing? Can you get there that way? Maybe not. Maybe you can get, or maybe some can and some can't, and others yeah. need something different. And again, I, I'm all for anything that makes the dream less painful. Why, you know, why wouldn't... You just do, in that case, you know, do it for the rest of your life. So are there more questions? Because I know we're... Well, none, none more, no more have come in from viewers, although they're welcome to send them if they want. Go to the upcoming interviews page. There's a form there. My sense with Byron Katie is she kind of reverse-engineered her experience, you know. She had a certain experience, and, she, and then she thought, well, how can I derive something practical for this that I can impart to others? And so she came up with this method. Or even, you know, and again, I, I can't speak for her, but if, if only, how can I understand what has happened? Again, where you start getting the mind involved in an experience. How do I understand? I agree with you, it was reverse engineered. Yeah. Um, you know, an experience happened and then there was a, a, an explanation. Right. Um, and a method. Um, but it didn't happen to her via the method. No, it, you know, she was in a halfway house and a cockroach crawled across her foot, right? And she had some kind of awakening. Which is, you know, I mean, the cockroach was coincidental. It was incidental to the story. You know, it just something... Yeah, just something clicked. that happened. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to get there by keeping pet cockroaches and letting them walk across your feet. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if people derive that from that story that, oh, I know what I need to do? Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's a sort of an absurd example, but people have done that for a long, long time. They, they try to emulate the, the external sure. behaviors or, or appearances or habits of, of teachers. Yep.
I mean, that's all over the place. It's in every ashram, right? All the all the folks sitting in the right position for the right length of time, for in the right yeah. uniform, and the you know, are they meditating right? Are they thinking right? Are they are they disciplined enough? If their mind wanders to sex, oh no, 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 no! You know, it's like okay. Yeah, there's a story of Shankar. I don't think this really happened, but it's one of those stories that illustrates a point where he was walking along with some disciples and. And they, he got a bit ahead of him, and they saw him drink something, and, and it turned out to be some alcoholic beverage or something. So they all drank some. And then he walked a little farther along, and they saw him drink something else, and they got up to the point, and it, it was a molten glass. <laughs> and the point was, you know, don't mimic me. I mean, I love that. And don't you wish you could send some version of that message to all those gurus being arrested right now? And all those disillusioned, painful, follow, pained followers, hoping that this person has what they want. It's a hard way to live. Yeah. And there are a lot of teachers who are trying to get away from that hierarchical, sage-on-a-stage kind of uh, arrangement, you know, making it more of a we're-all-one, you know, sitting in a circle kind of, you know, mentality. But it's, it's one of those another both-and things, because it's not to say that some people haven't sort of progressed a little bit further in terms of their, the depth of their experience or the clarity of it, and that they might not have something valuable to impart. But boy, if you, if you put them on a pedestal and, and uh, all kinds of problems begin to arise for you and them. Right. So, we don't have a hard and fast ending to this show, Judy. I mean, if there's anything that you feel like, you know, we've haven't touched upon that you would like to, uh, we can take a few more minutes. Uh. I am completely in your hands, you know. I, I, the only thing I would say is that I have taken over my poor cousin's house since I have mm-hmm. the toddler over my head in my own. Mm. Um, and so I, I won't be able to steal their house indefinitely, although <laughs> it's, it's a thought. But I guess... I guess I would just want to say for the folks that are listening that feel like they've tried everything and really given it a good go, Mm -hmm. and if they're still feeling stuck, that I think they can come at it sideways. Yeah. You know, I think that's hard to do by yourself. Um... It's hard to see straight by yourself. Sometimes, you know that old expression about how you can see other people's stuff, but you can't see your own. Yeah. Um, it's some. T- it helps, I think, to have an outside your particular loop, thought loop person. And you know that is a contradiction, I think, because in that sense, I think that's how people can fall into following a guru. Yeah. They are outside, it is somebody else, but I don't think they, you know, this, I'm babbling. I don't know, no, I, never I mind. I understand what you're trying to say. No, it's, it's coming across clearly. It's <laughs> another one of those things where there's, there's a balance point, um, where, you know, something can be helpful, but too much of it, or, or approaching it in the wrong way, can be harmful. Like anything, like, you know, water. <laughs> or, right. Or anything. Right. right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, teachers can be helpful. We shouldn't just brush off the whole value of teachers um, or guides or helpers or whatever. But obviously, there can be 
wholesome and um, twisted versions of that dynamic. So I was just thinking about how, you know, the dichotomy between none of it is me and all of it is me. It's all a realm of paradox yeah. and contradiction. And I, again, I think that these brains, these minds, they're too limited. And that was one of the things that was very clear in one of those so-called awakening experiences of mine. I even have this one on recorded, as a matter of fact. It was, I was talking to somebody and it was recording. And it became very clear that we're just not big enough we're limited by this, by all of this. We, mm -hmm. We're just not big enough to be able to to understand. Yeah, yeah, true. Can anyone honestly claim that they understand everything there is to be understood? You know, and and especially when it comes to awareness. And I, I always kind of crack up at these because uh, this is a common theme: the idea of being aware of awareness. What? Yeah. Well, yeah, then what is the awareness that's aware of the awareness? You know, then exactly, <laughs> right? And all within the limitations of this hardware. Yeah. Um, there is a point at which we don't have the capability. Right. That's why the, the, the Gita says the self realizes itself by itself, but, it doesn't, but there's actually no, no duality in that. It's not like a, this thing over here realizes this thing over here. It's more like a sort of a relaxing into oneness that makes sense yeah okay one final question Virginia Harry from Stowport on Servern in the UK wants to know and this is a good concluding question perhaps I struggle to incorporate what I know spiritually into my daily life can you offer any guidance I do know Virginia, actually, oh, and, um, and I'm sending her this answer with love. Actually, the integration of all of this into daily life, I mean, that's all it's good for. If we can't use it, right, if enlightenment doesn't bring something light, lighter, if, what's the point? What yeah, good is it? Really. And so I do spend a, a, a fair amount of time. I actually have a class coming up, uh, given this a few times on integrating mm -hmm. so that daily life is less painful, possibly more productive or, or whatever, just simply better. But for the dream to be a little easier, who wouldn't want that? Yeah. So how do you do that? Again, it's hard to do alone because the mind isn't gleefully willing to help. But a lot of it is just a question of seeing where the limitations are of thought. God, these words just are not doing the job. It is possible to integrate and just have a better life. I'm not saying that you're going to sit in a cave and be blissed out all the time. Right. But it is definitely something... The point of all this, again, if there is a point, otherwise why bother? Yeah. I interviewed a woman last week who was a disciple of a man who was a disciple of Yogananda. So she's in that tradition. And after the interview, I thought of one thing, a point I would like to have made. This was Ellen Grace O'Brien that I interviewed. 
And that is that spirituality is not a compartment of life. It's not a, a sort of an aspect or, or it, it's the whole basket and everything else is contained within and enhanced by it. If it genuinely, genuinely develops, it, sh it should just sort of have an enriching or an enlivening effect on, on everything. Uh, so this whole thing about sitting in a cave to experience bliss or something, that makes no sense to me. It's, it's not, right. I mean, maybe a few people are cut out for that kind of life, but it, for the vast majority of us, it, it would be extremely counterproductive and, it's not, and totally unnecessary. I mean, in the end, we do, as a rule, have a preference for this dream to be a satisfying one, a better one, an easier one, a more peaceful one. And in the end, without that, without the integration, what is spirituality and understanding and all of this education and learning, etc., if not for that, it's kind of like, what for? Yeah, I totally agree. So, it's about the dream. Why not want it to be better? Yeah. And some people use that as a point of criticism. They talk about you know, people wanting to just have a better dream rather than getting out of the dream. But I think the way to make the dream really better is to get out of it while remaining in it, as we've sort of discussed here. It's your only option because yeah. we, don't, you know, we don't turn into vapor right. as soon as we get there. You know, we don't vanish. We still have to go to the grocery store. So it has to be both. Alrighty. So I just want to say, Judy, that I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I don't feel like I've disagreed with you at all, although it may have seemed like that at times. I feel like I've just tried to, in every case, say, yes, I agree, but how about also this, the both-and thing. And we, I, we did get some complaints during the interview that I was talking too much, and I did talk oh. more than I usually do in interviews, I think, I hope. Uh, <laughs> I hope I don't usually talk this much. But it was a conversation, and it was a lively one, and... As you said, at some point you, you were kind of interviewing me and asking me what I thought, which is why I, I went on a bit. Which is not your fault. That yeah. was mine. But I apologize yeah. to anybody who doesn't like me to do that. And uh, all in all, I think we had a, a really fun time together. I agree. And it was uh, I enjoyed it very much. Great. Okay. And I just want to say one more yes, thing. Yes, sure. Even if we did, and I hear you, <clears throat> but even if we did disagree, uh -huh. I am used to being disagreed with. So it's not, that's not a problem for me. Well, it's like you said in the very beginning. It's one thing to sort of say, well, yeah, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but there's also this, and I also think that. It's another thing to say, no, you're wrong, and I'm right. right. You know, to right. take this adamant, rigid kind of stance, and I think neither you and I are inclined to do that. Right. <laughs> so thank you. Good, thank you. Um, so I've been speaking with Judy Cohen as... Uh, always, she'll have a page on batgap.com where it'll say a bit about her and then link to her website. What is your website? Might as well just say it also. My website is irreverentmind.com. And I guess I probably should say, uh, you know, if anybody is intrigued at all, I do have a class coming up in sometime in February, I think February 24th maybe, on integrating. Okay. Um, all of this with, with real life. Good, so they can go to your website and find out about that. Yeah. And this yeah. is 2019, January 26, 2019, as we're recording this. Some pe people will be listening to this 10 years from now. So 
anyway, if, if you catch that class, great. And you probably have some kind of email thing people can sign up for to be notified of future things, right? Absolutely. Um, the Mind Tickler, they can, uh, again, on the website, just uh-huh. click on any of the very various links to subscribe to the newsletter, which comes out every every week and is designed to just spark some new ideas. Yeah, they did for me. I enjoyed reading those. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So thanks to those who are listening, who have been listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one, hopefully.